0: The rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard,
1: a show about all things from the perspective of two revolutionary vegan women.
0: I'm Mexie. And
1: I'm Maureen. And in today's show, we'll be bringing you a laminated blueprint for how to end capitalism <laughs> and what to build <laughs> in its place.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it'll be laminated because this is the only way that it can possibly be the done. The ultimate. Mm-hmm. This is the only solution, and of course, we have discovered it, and we're just going to pass it out like a pamphlet, <laughs> and <laughs> everyone. I just, can just cannot believe us. we
1: haven't thought about this before. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, we got so many questions asking us, "What's the alternative, guys? Tell me now, what's the alternative?" And we thought, well. Okay, we better come up with a, <laughs> a foolproof, <laughs> really well thought out alternative. And that's that. So
1: well, otherwise we're really not allowed to speak about
0: the prodigy that is
1: <laughs> that is capitalism.
0: Right. Yeah. Otherwise we're just super naive and yeah. um yeah, need to just be quiet. So mm-hmm. so we solved that. Good. Great. <laughs> I'm so happy to get this out of the way. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, no, but the reason we're being quite sassy about this is because we get, well, I feel like there's a half of the comments or more than half of the comments that are not asking in a well-intentioned way, right? That Mm -hmm. just sort of want to silence us. So that's why they're being like, well, you can't criticize capitalism as long as you come up with an alternative. Mm -hmm. But then I do think that some of the comments are more well-intentioned that are just saying, like, you know, what's the alternative? Like, I do think that we need to talk about alternatives, and it is important. Mm -hmm. And it is, like, really – it is hard.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, there's even a ton of leftists who are, like, fully on the anti-capitalist train being like, okay, but how do we organize this? How do we do that? You know? So these are conversations we should be having. Um, But, like, A, yeah, we should be having them in, like, good faith. And B, we should be thinking of them as – you know, collaborative conversations that we need to be having to build out some of these ideas in the present day. You know, mm-hmm. it, it shouldn't just be like, okay, well, here, here's the solution. This one person thought of it. Like mm-hmm. So anyway, we're gonna get into all of that today. <laughs> yeah. I think we're I
1: think a lot of people are looking for models to follow instead of trying to create mm-hmm. something in capitalism's place.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, like we definitely we can't just be looking for this one magical thing that we can follow. We have to actually understand that we ourselves are the creators of this. So like we need to start imagining, we need to start building, we need to start talking and working together. Um, Mm I think that's such, yeah, a great way to put it.
1: Yeah. I think it also comes from this myth that capitalism is just like this one thing, and it's responsible for everything we've got up until this point. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> how are we just going to sub it with something else? It comes from a, mm-hmm. a I think, a deep misunderstanding of what capitalism is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good segue, perhaps into the definition.
1: <laughs> oh yes. So Maxi, I was wondering, what is capitalism exactly?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked, Marine, because <laughs> unlike what some people may think that you know capitalism is this (sighs) voluntary interaction between two willing parties that exchange services and both you know both mutually benefit from the exchange Mm -hmm. of those services (laughs) um capitalism is actually a mode of production capitalism socialism anarchism all of these isms are all different modes of production so they're based around things like property rights and means of production and the way that profits are generated and surplus is distributed. So each one of them can take many different forms. Like capitalism is often associated with like liberal democracies. However, there have been and continue to be many capitalist dictatorships. Like there's no one form that any of these things necessarily have to take. Mm-hmm. Um, so capitalism is a mode of production based around the private ownership of the means of production and distribution of goods and services. This grew out of feudalism in England through a series of private land enclosures where land was enclosed and the peasants that were working that the land um, were forced to... Leave. They were evicted. And so since they no longer had access to that land or means of producing for themselves, they were then forced to sell their labor for a wage. So this is what we call primitive accumulation. This is the process through which people are turned into the laboring class because they have no access to the means of producing anything for themselves. They can't support themselves other than through selling their labor for a wage and then buying things that they used to be able to produce for themselves. (laughs) Um, So capitalism, therefore, functions as a system where there's a capitalist class or the owners of capital and the means of production, such as property, equipment, etc., and they spend that capital and money and hire laborers to produce commodities that will be sold for a higher amount than the money that was initially invested. And so this ad- this additional value is produced by the workers, who are the ones who actually combine the raw materials into commodities and produce this higher value Um, but workers are not paid that full value of all the time they put in for their social labor and this is how profits are made and of course the profit the profits are taken by the capitalist so capitalism does not function without this class hierarchy and exploitation of labor Mm -hmm. and in order to compete with other capitalists each firm must also strive to increase efficiency and profit generation in order to reinvest Um, in increased production and efficiency because capital is really just capital in motion. Like, it's only capital if you're going to reinvest it to produce more capital. Otherwise, it's just money and, like, wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But when the markets are saturated, the main way to increase profits is to lower the cost of production, which means putting a downward pressure on labor and wages and cutting corners environmentally. Or in other words, the social and environmental costs of capitalist accumulation or competition are externalized. And this is why we see increasing inequality and environmental degradation as inherent parts of capitalist accumulation. So these are not accidents. These are things that happen based on the inner mechanisms of capitalism as a mode of production itself. And as I said, capitalism can take many different forms, being dictatorship, uh, a quote-unquote liberal democracy. Capitalism is not
1: synonymous with democracy, unlike so many people think.
0: Yeah, absolutely not. It is not. Um, That is like a very good point that needs to be underscored that, yeah, it could be anything. And even like, I mean, we could do a whole other podcast about like the quote-unquote democracy that we enjoy in liberal capitalist democracies, but Mm -hmm. that's a different story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you for that explanation. It was very insightful and super concise. <laughs> I feel like our listeners are going to have to go back and play it and listen to it. And be like, ah, yes, yes. <laughs> That's what I do with a lot of podcasts. I'm just like, mm, wait, this, this was really good information. But I think we also need to, yeah, understand that, ec- like, the economy or capitalism is not just an objective science of just like, well, you know certain people pursue profits and then exploitation is inherent to it. And so like, I think that's definitely a part of it, but I think that what people also fail to see is that like the world trade organization and the structures, the the institutions that structure the flow of resources actually have a huge impact on like how that flow operates. So it's really, um, it's, It's an economic model and it's also like a model for maintaining inequality Mm -hmm. between between different countries and regulating the flow of production
0: yeah for sure because like if you just look at what i just said about the inherent mechanisms of capitalism like profits are produced through inequality like any profits do not get produced without inequality. So Mm -hmm. a lot of these things that are here now in late stage capitalism are, yeah, these political mechanisms for increasing that and maintaining that upward flow of money from the bottom Mm -hmm. to the top. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So next I want to dispel the myth like once and for all that capitalism is working and is reducing inequality Mm -hmm. because the world bank and just a lot of people, a lot of important people have been peddling this myth that inequality on a global scale is getting better with capitalism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's not. And I looked a bit, I looked into this a little bit more, um, and that myth is actually based on extremely misleading stats, um, and they're misleading for two main reasons. The first is that, so they the stats are calculated as if everybody in the world is part of, like, one big country. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even then, it's only so so. If you consider like that, everyone is part of one big country. It is true, um, but that's only if you include China and East Asia uh, in the mix. And interestingly enough, they're the only parts of the world that haven't been forcibly globalized by the Washington consensus mm-hmm. established in nineteen in the nineteen eighties. So they they were able to transform their economy largely according to their own standards. However, if we look at global inequality between different regions of the world, so like across rich and poor countries or north and south, what we see is that inequality has gotten much, much worse. And actually, the income gap between the poor and the rich in the last few decades has tripled. Mm -hmm. So... That's why it's. In, that's one reason why it's in, incredibly misleading. Um, we definitely see that wealth is being massively transferred from south, like from the south to the north. Mm-hmm. And okay, the other the other um, factor that makes this stat misleading is so. So the UN says there's about 700 million to 1 billion poor people in the world, and that that number has been decreasing steadily. However, they put the threshold for what poverty, what qualifies as poverty at $1.25 a day, which is ridiculous because no one can actually live on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's estimated by a lot of economists that the basic level of human subsistence can only be achieved with at least $5 a day. Okay, so that's like if you want to be able to like drink and eat and live past like your second birthday. Mm-hmm. Um And if you if you look at that stat of $5 a day, there's actually 4.3 billion people in the world living in poverty. Mm -hmm. So that's quite a massive difference. So the yields of capitalism are very much going to the rich countries. And obviously the rules of capitalism are regulated in a way that's beneficial to them. And another interesting stat is that all of the new income generated in the past few decades. Out of all of that income, only five percent has gone to the poorest sixty percent of the world. so trickle down my ass uh, mm-hmm. at this rate of trickling down <laughs> economists actually economists actually estimate that it would take over two hundred years to eradicate poverty, but that's like mm-hmm. considering you know doing as if we wouldn't blow ourselves up if we kept going this way for two hundred years, which we would so mm-hmm. it's like an unrealistic statistic
0: anyway. Yeah, for sure. Um, Like, the World Bank also, like, incredibly doctored their stats on poverty. It makes me so mad when people say that poverty is being reduced. Um, Like, because they're the institution that's supposed to be eradicating poverty. So it looked pretty bad for them where like decade after decade after decade, poverty was increasing. Even I right. just read um, Joseph Stiglitz, uh, his, his new book, um globalization is and its discontents um but the original version of that was written um prior i I can't remember when exactly was written but he was doing a lot of the research during the 90s and even in that book he talks about how you know despite the rhetoric of the world bank he was the former head of the world bank uh chief economist of the World Bank, by the way, so he knows what he's talking about. He was saying that poverty had actually increased over the 90s, um, like, a significant amount. And this is the head of the World Bank. And then suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, the tables return. Like, we move into the 21st century, and suddenly the world's getting so much better, despite, like, the Washington consensus policies that destroyed everything, despite neoliberalism. Suddenly it's getting better.
1: And mm-hmm. everyone's like...
0: Okay, you know, oh, wow, great. Capitalism is like finally working. It's like, really? You think that it all of a sudden just switched from getting so much worse to being immediately better? Mm-hmm. I'll include a, an article in the show notes talking about how they actually, um, you know, changed the goalposts and how it didn't align with inflation and how, yeah, like the stats that they use made it seem as though overnight, all of a sudden, all these people are no longer in poverty. Whereas really the problem is just as bad as before, if not way worse. So it really makes me sick when I see people like the Bill Gates Foundation and like just anyone online telling me that like, well, it's everything is getting so much better. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, oh, fuck.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I think that one of the most destructive myths that we tell ourselves about capitalism in like in the West, you know, in rich countries is that rich countries are just, they're doing incredibly well because they're very smart and because they're very hardworking, but we're the ones who are actually very generous (laughs) and who give a lot of aid to the poor countries, right? This whole like myth of international aid and actually international aid. So if we look at the budget, it's actually a lot of money. It's 130 billion per year that goes from North to South. Mm -hmm. But actually, uh, the thing is that there's way more flowing from south to north. Mm-hmm. So it's really poor countries that are developing rich countries in a sense. But that's just contu- that's just thought of as like, well, that's just really good business when they're forced to give us all of our wealth. However, it's like aid when we give them, mm-hmm. when, when money goes from, from north to south. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's like one of the most yeah one of the most pervasive and harmful myths that Mm -hmm. that people need to understand
0: and yeah yeah. sorry yeah absolutely I was watching I don't know if you know this but mad blender did a like a debate with uh the vegan cheetah uh the other day yeah oh
1: my god poor (laughs) poor mad blender I know so
0: anyways well I was watching it live and I was commenting whatever and he was saying all of that stuff that you're god. just talking about and it like he obviously thinks that um you know the real problem is like the elite jews that are running everything oh, god. um he actually commented to me like "Mexi are you denying that the elite jews are not the ones running the world bank and whatever" and i was just like "oh my god fuck off" but like please
1: refer to what our third podcast
0: please refer to like any information ever like just do some reading that's not like Breitbart news or whatever yeah. you know um But, yeah, those are the common talking points, especially with this, like, rise of the alt-right, is that, like, well, Western civilizations just work really hard, and we're just really, Mm -hmm. really smart, and we just earned all of this, and everyone else is just too backwards to get it together, and that's why they're poor, and that's why we Mm -hmm. shouldn't have them immigrate. It's just like, Mm -hmm. oh, man.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So actually there was a comprehensive study, like the most comprehensive study, like in the world, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. we can, like we can link it in the show notes that was done in December of 2015, um, by an association called the global financial integrity association or something that partnered with the Norwegian school of economics, Mm -hmm. um, to, to study the financial flows around the world. And, they found that for every $1 of aid that african countries receive they lose $24 in net outflows
0: mhm yeah
1: and that's through like in like a, a bunch of illicit financial flows where like companies are basically just like taking money from poor countries and storing it in tax havens mm-hmm. um or like misinvoicing their their profits. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Did you read that on an, an article is it, in the Guardian called Aid in Reverse? Is that what you're looking at?
1: No, actually a lot of these stats I'm getting from a podcast from the Underskin, Under the Skin podcast by Russell Brand, you know, mm. cuz like he's my, Isn't that weird? <laughs> did you know that I love Russell Brand? Anyway, uh, the podcast is called Inequality is Killing Us All. Are we going to stop it? And it's with guest Jackson, no Jason Hickel. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Okay. I really love this episode, so we'll we'll link it in the show notes. But so you you read it somewhere else too? Yeah,
0: I'll link also the Guardian article. It's like just a very concise showing how yeah aid is. We we should stop conceptualizing aid as like actually doing anything aid. to to develop mm-hmm. the global south because it's really set up for this global south to keep funneling their money and resources and everything to the global north.
1: Right. I mean, when we think about it, if if we didn't regulate the world, the flows of cash around the world, according to like some fictitious social construct like money, why would it make sense that the countries producing all of the like material concrete resources are the poorest ones? Mm-hmm. Like how have, how has our imagination been like so brainwashed and colonized that we Actually, think that that makes
0: sense. Yes, so fucking colonized. Like I, yeah, it boggles I my don't mind. Understand how that makes sense. It boggles my mind. <laughs> yeah, no, it
1: really does. It really, it, it's we've completely normalized and like naturalized the idea that that just African countries and other countries in the global south are just poor, even though we we know that they're the ones giving us all mm-hmm. of. The resources.
0: Mm-hmm. It just boggles like, me because I'm like, I feel like I never believed that. Like, I feel like even when I was a child, I never believed that. So I'm just like, I'm looking around and I'm just like, am I like <laughs> losing it? You know what I mean? Like, like am I just like – <laughs> But you were,
1: you, you were just like a very woke child, I feel like. <laughs> but but I mean, even today. Um, but but yeah, no, you're right. Like, a, a, literally a two-year-old
0: would understand this. Right. Like, like even today I'm looking around and I'm just like – who are all these normies? Like, I'm just like, or like, am I the like, you know, really weird one who's just missing something? But I'm just like, no, no. Like, I feel like this is very easy to understand. Right. I don't
1: know. But I mean, this message is pushed on us literally
0: 500 times a day. So I know, but man, I just still, I'm like, just sidebar, we don't have to include this, but like just a funny thing about like I just you know obviously recently joined OkCupid okay just like for the hell of it to see oh girl
1: we're including this <laughs> okay fine
0: <laughs> okay so just like a funny tangent so as you know I've just recently joined OkCupid okay as like I do a funny like just to like see what it's about and like see who's out there and I made my profile like super polarizing it was like it's like i even said at the starting i'm like i'm gonna make this as polarizing as possible so that only the like the dopest of the dope yeah. message me so i'm like hit me up if you and then i have like a bulleted list and it's like mm-hmm. are critical of capitalism bonus points for like marxist analysis are mm-hmm. anti-imperialist are feminist. are like like all the shit mm-hmm. right um i would hit you up girl yeah <laughs> but yeah I, and i kind of figured that I wouldn't get like too many messages. I don't know. I got like, I've gotten so
1: many people on there are just hungry and don't give a fuck.
0: Honestly, I've gotten like a billion messages. Mm -hmm. um, And a lot of them will like kind of be like, oh, yes, I'm a Marxist and I'm a feminist or whatever. But then you start talking to them and you realize that like they don't really know what they're talking about. Um, But Mm -hmm. even an even greater number than that are just sending me these messages that are just like so either clued out or who are like ha ha like you're fucked or like you are wearing so many things in your picture that are made by capitalism and i'm just like Mm -hmm. who am i surrounded by like i you know what i mean i'm just like are you like would you actually ever say that as a real argument like that just shows that you've done no thinking what's no thinking whatsoever about the situation that you're in about the systems around you like Even, like, even now when I'm saying you should be critical of capitalism, you're not even going to take this moment to do any reflection at all, at all. You're just going to say that? You know, I'm just, like, I can't even respond to that. Like, I don't – people are just, like, oh, you don't want your views challenged. I'm, like, but that's not a challenge. That's ridiculous. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't have time for that. (laughs) you know what I mean? And I'm just, like – everyone's mind is so colonized it just it really made me actually feel I've only been on there for like two days but Mm -hmm. actually just like the number of messages that I got that were just so like strange like that I'm just like wow I it just really made me feel like I am just the odd person out of like my entire city and like possibly my entire country because everyone's mind is so fucking colonized
1: I know it's it's the scare. I mean, we're laughing about it now, but that those are the times when I get just so discouraged and mm-hmm. uh, just, like, upset, you know? Yeah. But that being said, and and we're going to talk about, like, the solutions later on, but just briefly, I do feel like there's less and less people who believe in capital. Like, I feel like there's no one left to defend this stuff, like, and and really honestly believe, like... That that privatization is the way that, like, indebting other, like, third world countries is ethical. Like, I do feel like there is a certain crisis arising where there's just no one left to defend the system anymore except for these, like, eight rich people who mm-hmm. govern, like, 60% of the wealth or whatever the fuck that crazy stat is. Um, mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Sometimes I'm optimistic and sometimes I'm not.
0: Yeah, you know, you're right. I I mean, I am optimistic. I'm seeing... I mean, this is the first time in my life life that I'm seeing a lot more people actually, like, openly organizing and openly talking about socialism. And, like, Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, this is definitely, like, a unique moment. But then I also – it's also just very discouraging, like, what a great – what a great job those, like, eight wealthy people are doing in, like, building all these right-wing think tanks and, like, Mm -hmm. getting all these neo-Nazis on board and Mm -hmm. you you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But anyway – definitely yeah so
1: to come back to my point that capitalism is not some objective science that the economy is not objective and i think people really need to understand that
0: mm-hmm.
1: um that a lot it's, it's of it's a capital, set of social
0: relations
1: absolutely that a lot of the that the flow of capital is regulated largely by the WTO which is such a profoundly anti-democratic body Not only do rich countries control 50% of the WTO, but the U.S. government has a veto on every single decision that's made there. So Mm -hmm. I think that, obviously, they're going to structure the flow of capital in a way that benefits them. And Mm -hmm. these these stats that I was citing earlier, that all of the money from the South is basically being hemorrhaged into the North, this is very much... um, this is very much orchestrated by the WTO and the rich countries themselves.
0: Yeah. That like the U S um, and the EU and Japan, like the tried economies also similarly dominate the world bank and the IMF. Like they mm-hmm. make the decisions in terms of all of that, like lending Washington consensus policies, et cetera. So this is all being structured by an elite few. Mm-hmm.
1: Totally. And it, just has had like a huge impact on like our history. So, this whole myth of international aid has very much indoctrinated us with the belief that all North countries want to do is like help the global South, you know? And it's just like, I don't know, because they're so incompetent or because the resources are so scarce, like, we just, it's just really hard. <laughs> um, sorry, I don't know why I'm getting so sassy and mad. Um, but Yeah, I mean, the origins of mass poverty, like the one that we have around today, really is like started under colonialism. Mm -hmm. And actually after colonialism ended, the rich countries really made sure that all of the poor countries, economically poor countries, um, would stay indebted to us forever. Mm -hmm. Um, So you would think that in the 1970s, Um, In the two decades after colonialism ended, there was so much resistance in the global south and they elected like a lot of leftist leaders. They implemented tariff protections and nationalized their own industries, redistributed land. Like it was really kind of a miracle of Mm -hmm. just like of recovery. You would think that the WTO that's uh, apparently tasked with like regulating the world economy so that it's as fair as possible would be thrilled. However, they were not. (laughs) and, you know, they literally, the the Global North, like the G7 countries literally sat down together and were like, okay, how are we going to stop developmentalism? Like, how are we mm-hmm. going to crush this resistance? And what they settled on was that the rich countries settled agreements with the IMF that the IMF would pay off, like basically bail out African countries in exchange, like only if they accepted structural adjustment programs that would mm-hmm. liberalize their economy and privatize their assets, lower all of their environmental regulations, like basically allow northern countries to recolonize their entire economy. Mm hmm. So that was a way to bail them out, but to keep them so much more indebted in the long run. And actually, if you look at how much debt they've had to pay, they've actually like paid it off a million times over already. But mm-hmm. the fact that there's like compounded interest rates and that it keeps getting more and more difficult to pay back um, and that banks, you know, have imposed all of these like, like free trade regulations and austerity measures. Mm-hmm. Um you know, keeps them, like, economically enslaved, basically. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah.
0: And, I mean, they have to pay, like, all of their GDP, you know, they have to pay, like, 40% of that back in debt repayments. So they have Mm -hmm. even – they don't have money for healthcare, education, or things that would actually help to develop their citizens or their country because they're literally paying, like, half of their money just to these fucking debt repayments, you know?
1: Right. Right. And, like, getting the other half stolen by corporations. Right, yeah. That are setting up, like, tax havens.
0: Yeah, or just, like, just leakage, just, like, foreign companies there. Like, the majority of profits go to them, and the laborers get, like, a, like, piddly shit, you know?
1: Right. So that's an example of how social democracy was actually flourishing and helping African nations – have more independence and have more wealth at a shockingly rapid and almost miraculous rate. Um, But it was torn down by, you know, neoliberal capitalist assholes. Mm -hmm. So you're also, Maxi, I think, going to talk about um, how we have been sold this revisionist history of communism Mm -hmm. in Eastern Europe.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and everywhere, like in Cuba, etc. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some of the some of the arguments that you'll hear against communism are that so many people died; like everyone fucking was murdered; like every like just everyone was dying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and also that life expectancy and quality of life has increased so much under capitalism, um, and so therefore it's the only option for us. First of all. I mean, there has been so much said about the, like, Black Book of Communism, which has been completely disproven, and yet people just still, like, hark on these numbers. Um, But anyway, like... if people dying is the benchmark for a shitty system, then I'm yeah, sorry. Which it should be. <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, well then I'm sorry, why are none of the crimes of capitalism actually attributed to capitalism mm-hmm. itself? Like the war crimes of Bush and Cheney and Reagan and, and everyone, um, you know, famine in Africa while food is being exported? Like, billions going hungry while we overproduce food. I'm sorry, why is that not attributed to, to capitalism? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, all of the deaths of left-wing groups everywhere at the hands of the CIA, all of the coups, and then everyone who died um, during, you know, the aftermath of the structural adjustment programs. We installed dictatorships across the world. Um mm-hmm in order to promote this this economic model. And I'm sorry, that's not part of capitalism. These are not deaths that should be attributed to capitalism. And what about capitalist dictators that have killed fucking everybody? You know what I mean? So it's just mm-hmm. like, okay, so yes. does that mean that capitalism is also the worst fucking system? And I think this goes back to the problem of people thinking that capitalism is just linked to democracy and not understanding that these are all modes of production that can be run under any number of different governance structures and so it's like yeah like the existence of you know totalitarianism or death or whatever like this is not exclusive to either capitalism or communism like the difference though is that capitalism is a system that is based around inequality and the production of inequality for profit, whereas alternatives are based around social need and communal ownership and like communal redistribution. Um, So yeah, I, I mean like famines in India under British colonial rule, I mean that 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 should be a crime of ca- capitalism. Like there have been in- an incredible amount of uh, politically motivated famines under capitalism. So you know it's just people talk about these things um, with like little self reflection <laughs> at all, or like little reflection on um, the system that has produced so many more deaths. I think actually Bad Mouse did a video about the death toll of capitalism as kind of mm-hmm. like a response to the the death toll of communism or whatever. Um, But yeah, that's just something that really bothers me. Um, Mm -hmm. Secondly, people saying that like, oh, well, like life expectancy has risen similarly in that vegan cheetah debate. People were saying, but li- like the colonizers helped Africa because life expectancy grew and their quality of life increased. Like, it, it they brought the big s-
1: talking point in France is that they built their middle class, yeah,
0: yeah, like and gave them roads, yeah, that, yeah. Someone said that to me, deal like, what about all their roads? And I'm just like, Jesus <laughs> Christ,
1: like, they can't eat the fucking roads, okay, or the canals that actually brought the malaria,
0: seriously. Yeah. But
1: what about the irrigation?
0: Yeah. Um, But even that argument is like, okay, well, life expectancy under the Soviet Union rose from 32 years before the revolution to 68 after Stalin's death, which at that time was a year more, like a year more than the life expectancy in the U.S. So, oh, I'm sorry, if life expectancy and standards of living are the benchmark of a great system, then is that not the best system in the world? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people just talk about these things with no nuance and like really not like, yeah, people just are not looking at these things as modes of production that can take different forms. Um, and they're not looking at like, well, what are the benefits of taking this form? Um mm-hmm. Similarly, under Cuba, like life expectancy rose, illiteracy has been eradicated. Um, Life expectancy is like the same as in the U.S., even though they are a poor nation. Um, And remember that they have also been sanctioned and embargoed and basically forced to, you know, be self-sufficient as a country. So how many other countries could actually make that transformation and actually survive to the degree that they have? Um, Their healthcare is amazing. They export doctors around the world. They export doctors to the U.S. And they were the ones, Cuba and Venezuela were the two countries that rushed to Puerto Rico's aid when they were having the disaster. So it's just like, I'm, I'm sorry, this is a, a like a huge failure across the board. Like, obviously, we have to look at like human rights abuses, we have to look at the quality of democracy, etc. But it's like, how are people calling these things complete disasters and like not actually looking at what's going on. Like under Mao in China, life expectancy rose from 35 to 65. Like they took these backwards peasant countries and turned them into the two biggest superpowers in the world, Russia and China. So uh, what? You know what I mean? Like I'm not saying like obviously we're not seeing that everything was rosy dozy and that nobody died like that's horrific that so many people died um but also the, the, those were terrible policy mistakes like even like no one's gonna like geniuses make mistakes you know what i mean um so we have to look at like okay that was bad we don't want that we don't really want like secret police running around killing everybody um but mm. we do want free health care for all we do want uh illiteracy eradicated we do want everyone having housing and food which they all did um Mm -hmm. like even joseph Stiglitz in his book uh he has a whole chapter on like the soviet system and the the neoliberal aftermath um same with dr godzi i was listening to a podcast recently um, where she was talking about, you know, uh, the devastation that happened in those countries, well, in Russia and in, in Eastern Europe, when the World Bank and the, the Western powers came in and basically forced them to liberalize their economies and adopt like neoliberal capitalism. And how fucking horrible that was for everybody, because everyone they went from a system of full employment Full. Everyone had housing. Everyone had healthcare. Everyone had food. Like infrastructure was all organized. They went from that to the system of quote unquote freedom, where nobody could actually afford to buy what they needed to live anymore, and that's the difference, you know. And even Joseph Stiglitz, like he was, he was saying how fucking like the whole thing is about how horrible the neoliberal aftermath was. And he is not a leftist, by the way. He is like former head of the World Bank or whatever. Um. It was a bit contradictory, though, because he was saying he was saying all these things that like the Soviet Union had and that, you know, they turned this backward peasant country into this industrial global superpower that was making the U.S. like tremble and so sta- so scared that they had to go out and do all these like counter-revolutionary things and, uh, you know, promote these structural adjustment programs. And it's like. That was a huge failure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm not sure. You know what I mean? Um. Anyway, I think the point is that we have to like look at things in a much more nuanced way. Look at what was working. And then, you know, how can we implement that in today's world? Because conditions are so different today. So, again, we can't just, like, take a blueprint. Like, nobody is suggesting today that we just take the blueprint of the Soviet Union and say, okay, we're just going to do exactly that. That wouldn't even work. We're not a peasant society here in Canada. Like, we would have totally different needs. We, We would have to do, you know, so many different things to organize uh, a communal democratic society, right? So it's like we need to be building these things today, but we already have a lot of examples of things that we're working for people um that we can draw from and and mm-hmm. and you know work to build the future.
1: Totally. And even if someone did have the answer, there there is no one answer for different region for all these different regions of the mm-hmm. world. Like we, I think, need local solutions that are collectively conceived of we can't Mm -hmm. I mean arguably that that's like one of the problems when you're talking about like you know Russia we don't we don't want one person with all of the power we don't want you know
0: Mm -hmm. yeah but it's like we have to start thinking about you know what we want as a society and then how can we build things around that Um, like I was listening to an interview with David Harvey recently and he was talking about Castro And, uh, about he, how he was, uh, basically like lambasting the U S because the U S was saying that, you know, Cuba was such a horrible place and they had so many human rights abuses and whatever. And, um, Castro was saying, you know, well, I mean, like not to excuse like any rights abuses that did go on, but he was talking about how, you know, well, our, our, our idea of human rights is very different than the Western you know, like you're trying to impose your idea of human rights onto us, whereas we have a different vision of what human rights means. Like for America, human rights is like are these abstract individual consumption, right? Like individualism, um, like freedom of speech, freedom of whatever, but just these abstract like You
1: can work your entire life and then buy half of a car,
0: right? Yeah, freedom to freedom to starve. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in, in Cuba, you're saying, well, our ideas of, uh, of human rights are everyone has housing, our rights to healthcare, our rights to education, free education, our rights to, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. our idea of rights is very different. Like ours are more material based, where everyone is actually taken care of, and yours are more, you know, pie in the sky. Everyone's free, but, you know, you're not guaranteed shit. And like, you know who cares if you starve in the street that's your own fault you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so i don't know we just we have to start like it's it's more than just kind of trying to think about the blueprints we also have to think like a bit more philosophically about yeah what do we mean by human rights what do we want to structure our society around and then how do we how do we make that happen you know mm-hmm. i also think that we have to look at the role of like sanctions and imperialist pressure on all of these different countries as a major you know, reason why they were facing many challenges that they were facing. And even today, countries under strict sanctions and embargoes, like how in the fuck do you think that a country is supposed to survive that? I mean, the point of these sanctions and these actions are to make them cave or to make things so bad in that country that they have to cave and accept Economic imperialism, World Bank coming in, regime change, um, that's the point of all these things. So, you know, if, if a capitalist country is being slapped with the same sanctions, embargoes, um, you know, outright aggression and threats of attack... Like, how do you think that they would fare? You know what I mean? Especially, like, a poorer country in Africa. Like, there's always this joke, because people always say, like, if you love communism so much, why don't you move to Venezuela? Um, which isn't even socialist, by the way. It's, like, 70% privately owned, and, like, it's very obvious that the CIA is behind, like, wanting regime change there very badly, and they're working towards it through sanctions, etc. Um, but then, I don't know, I, I always find it funny. Like, I've heard this joke where it's like, okay, well, if you love capitalism so much, why don't you move to Somalia? Or, like, why don't you move to Bangladesh? Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, yeah, anyway, Dr. Godsey in this podcast that I was listening to made this great analogy that I wanted to share. Um, she said or she was talking about, you know, imagine that I am a young girl, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to build this tower out of blocks, and I'm building, and I'm building, and I'm getting really close to the top, but before I can finish, my brother runs over and knocks the whole thing down. And then I think, oh, shit, all right, I'm going to try and try this again. So I start again, I start building it up, and once again, right when I'm right near the top, my brother comes over and knocks the shit down. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And I I do it again. This keeps happening. And then my mom comes over and is like, oh, well, there must be something wrong with the blocks themselves. You know, it's like that doesn't, you know,
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I love that analogy. It's like, well, is it fair to assume that it's the blocks that have a defect or maybe right. just the brother that keeps on coming and knocking it
0: down? Right. It's like, well, maybe it's like the entire rest of the world fucking attacking the shit out of this this thing and making Trust sure that it, it never happens. Even like your example of them uh, like eradicating the developmentalism in mm-hmm. in asia and africa it's like we don't even want like a budding of this to to mm-hmm. start you know what i mean so it's just like yeah yeah i don't know it just really is frustrating to me
1: mm-hmm. totally so let's talk about proposed solutions all right um when i was doing some research for this episode. I sort of broke it down into two sections, like one that is more like solutions from within the system and how we can help alleviate this shit show. And then more just conceptual, I guess, tips or things that I think about in terms of how to emancipate ourselves from capitalism. So in the podcast that I was mentioning before, Jason Hickel, an economist, was suggesting some of... What he thought were the most important structural adjustments that needed to take place, um, he mentioned that like complete debt cancellation, or at mm-hmm. least if it's not debt cancellation, like a mass, <laughs> a massive resistance to pay them. <laughs> and also, um, number two would be democrat- democratizing institutions like the World Trade, Trade Organization to radically alter the trading structure of the way that our capital flow exists today. Mm -hmm. And also a fair international wage system, so implementing a global minimum wage. And he said that this could actually be very easily done through the UN by the International Labor Association. And for example, he suggested that all the minimum wages... That, like every country's minimum wage should be fifty should be fifty percent of the country's medium wage because that would pretty much eradicate working poverty overnight because right now we have laborers competing with each other on all sides of the world to drive their own wages down mm-hmm. basically that's what they have to do um, mm-hmm. under like wage like capitalist wage labor and so you know implementing such a policy that the wage actually cannot be driven down more than 50 percent of the country's medium wage makes a lot of sense I feel like Mm -hmm. and could actually be feasibly done very quickly Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and really realizing that collective solidarity needs to be emphasized before personal responsibility and organizing collectively so that like these wages can't be driven down like this in the first place Mm -hmm. a lot of these structural policies that i'm suggesting and that um he mentioned on the podcast like amounts to freeing ourselves from this false narrative of aid and development and of the hardworking north and like the poor incompetent south i just really can't stress enough how important i think that that is in order to Mm -hmm. In order to like envision something different to realize that like capitalism is not just like an inevitability. It isn't just like this invisible force that's just mathematically governing our economy. It's Mm -hmm. like a system of control that is deliberately administered to keep certain people rich. And to make more and more people poor, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I really love the idea of like democratizing our global institutions. Um, I think that would make a huge difference. Like if, if the imagine if the African nations and and poor developing nations around the world actually had the same, you know, voting power as every other country, like as the U.S. as all the Western countries, like they would have never voted for all of these structural adjustment Mm -hmm. programs never (laughs) never never um so yeah i think that is uh something to think about going forward um because we do live in a globalized world right now and we can't just build something that is disconnected from the rest of the world i mean countries that are trying to do that within this global system are definitely struggling because they don't have anyone to trade with they're you know they're stuck um Mm -hmm. so we do need to think about um, yeah, like more international solutions. Um, so I think, you know, democratizing our, our global institutions is a great thing. Um of course, like we definitely would have to go further because this is like still within the overarching mode of production of capitalism. Um, I just want to briefly define the different modes of production like socialism, communism and, and anarchism as Uh, you know, the most common alternatives that people talk about. There are definitely more, um, which we're not going to go into today. Um, But these are kind of just like the main ones. So uh, as opposed to capitalism, socialism is a mode of production based on collective ownership of the means of production and distribution of goods and services, where there would be no ruling class that leashes profit off of the labor of others. So the workers themselves would de- democratically make decisions around what to produce and how, and basic necessities for survival like food, health care, um, education, etc., are organized as universal rights. And without the extreme inequality that leads so many people to take, like, whatever low-paying job that they can get just to survive, people would be free to pursue their highest potential. Like, this is in theory. Um, mm-hmm. Communism is, is a socialist system, but it goes even further. So it's um, communal ownership of the means of production, communal property, but it's also, like, it's a stateless, classless, and moneyless society where production and distribution are are based around people's abilities and needs so in other words people contribute to society according to their abilities and they receive according to their need um so just in case people think that communism is like some violent dictatorship like this is what it means it's a mode of production and i i don't think we've ever seen a stateless classless moneyless society like in you know the 20th 21st century so no we have not seen communism you know there's Mm -hmm. we have seen socialism different forms of socialism but communism has not been seen um i think that's one of my biggest pet peeves where people don't actually understand what communism is and they just like do you want to explain the main difference um well socialism like socialism can take a number of forms as well um doesn't necessarily have to look one way but um like People describe it as kind of like the lower stage of communism or as, you know, trying to organize things uh, in an anti-capitalist way. And the end goal is communism, um, which is a stateless, classless, moneyless, moneyless society. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like th- that's, I guess, basically the difference between socialism and communism. So yeah, just, <laughs> I just want to make that very clear for people who are thinking that communism is a particular thing. Similarly, anarchism, it's similar to both in terms of its, you know, communal uh, communal decision making, communal ownership of the means of production. It's not based around private property. Um, however, production and distribution are organized through voluntary associations um, and non-hierarchical forms of governance. Um, and often decision making is organized through direct democracy, so people are democratically deciding on things like together at all times it's not representative democracy where you have you elect someone who then makes the decisions for you it's everyone's involved in all the decisions um i think a lot of them stress like consensus-based forms of decision making so so yeah i just wanted to make clear like these are the ideas of the different alternatives and then we as people wanting to build these alternatives today have to, I mean, first of all, have a solid analysis, like a solid Marxist or critical analysis of capitalism today and the the problems that we're facing today and the structures that are preventing us from reaching, you know, equality or free healthcare or free this and that. So we have to start with that, which is what I think Maureen and I are trying to do on our channels and like with this podcast and everything. Um, And then we have to take a look at okay, how can we organize some, like, how can we organize air travel in a socialized way? How can we organize all these things in in ways that are decommodified, democratic, um, and, you know, actually are there to serve the people and not to serve profit for capitalists. So this can take any number of forms, right? And we we have seen a number of different attempts at different forms. I mean, there's the Zapatistas, there's, uh, you know, there's so many different um, examples throughout history of people trying different things. And, you know, certain ideas work very well. Certain ideas are maybe less desirable, but we -hmm. have a lot to work with, you know? Yeah. I just think we we don't do a good enough job at embracing that in uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that there are a lot of great ideas that can be extrapolated from these systems or from these ways of like relating to each other in these modes of production that you've described under communism and and anarchism Mm -hmm. like there's so many there's so many ideas that i want to take forward and like definitely implement them as part of like the new plan Mm -hmm. um like the idea of being anti-authoritarian and like radically against hero worship Uh, i don't want like one person and notably one white cis like rich man (laughs) governing, like, whatever this laminated blueprint will look like. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, the idea of, like, being self-sustainable and, like, producing locally, having no currency, like, no arbitrary socially constructed currency that governs, like, how resources are allocated and how, like, capital actually flows, but instead have a system that's premised on, like, material goods that people actually need to survive, Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah, like I also have a lot of ideas about like incarceration and being Mm anti-incarceration and everything that you said about a, a model that would be based on like cooperation rather than competition. So yeah, those are like conceptual ideas. And then as you said, there are plenty of experiments that have been done around the world, like very successfully that we can learn from like the Zapatistas or like currently, at least I know all over Europe, I don't know what it's like in other places of the world, but there are militant occupations going on um, that are usually set up to physically halt the development of corporate projects. Like in France, there is um, something called the zone à défendre in uh, right near Nantes, basically, because there was an a- airport that needed to be built. Um, and people were like, fuck no, and they organized and they basically like appropriated the land. And and it, there's like over 200 people living there now. And, you know, it's hard and resistance isn't all like, you know, rainbows and flowers, but they're living there and they don't have money and they're producing food and um, they're they're making it, you know, mm-hmm. and arguably a lot more than than people in other parts of the country that are like being crushed by wage labor and neoliberalism mm-hmm. and poverty. Um, there's also the no TAV movement in Italy, which was um, a militant occupation uh, of, I think a train station or like a new railway that was going to be built. Um, I've also talked a bit on my channel about the Argentinian worker owned factory movement that started after like the crisis of the financial crisis in 2001 where basically all these workers all these factories shut down and the workers like occupied the bankrupt businesses and like reappropriated the means of production and made it like radically anti-hierarchical like it's pretty um like pretty amazing um basically they have to not establish like a hierarchy in the way that the factory works they need to they change positions every like month or so. Maybe it's like six month rotations. I'm sure that every factory has their own way of doing it, but like six month rotations where like one person, like there's not one person who's always the janitor and one person mm-hmm. who's always the CEO, you know, they're all like capacitated to take on and understand these different positions. And like all, like, all decisions of the factory are made collectively and they've had like a lot of success with it. And, yeah, it's still, like, going on today in Argentina. So, anyway, like, these are just, like, some ideas. I think, yeah, I think um, worker-owned factories and and businesses where the workers actually own the means of production is, like, super important. So, yeah, but I think, in general, just embracing the idea that other systems are possible, the idea Mm -hmm. of, like, embracing confusion, I read um, an article by Afco in her book Afroism that really resonated with me where she was describing how badly activists need to like reject certain labels um, or and just like embrace confusion in general and I wrote down a few of the quotes because they really resonated with me so she was talking about like um people who ask questions like you know but another system isn't possible or like what you mm-hmm. like well what do you just want like communism then and everyone to die or whatever and she said you know though these confused though these questions or she wasn't referring exactly to these questions. I forget what they they were, but they were in the same vein. Um, and she said, through these questions, though these questions are frustrating, they demonstrate how people are colonized by the mainstream system to the extent they can't even imagine new possibilities for themselves. Mm-hmm. And further in the essay, she says confusion is usually a symptom of decolonizing yourself from the mainstream systems. Answers aren't easily laid out in front of you since you're now forced to think critically. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, like really uh, just resonated with me. Oh, and she also said, which I, th- I thought was a really good point, like I think that people accuse me or accuse us of like being in a cult because we're anti-capitalists and we're <laughs> vegan and we have these ideas like that equality would actually be good and Oof. it's actually possible to live in a world where everyone has enough to sustain themselves. <laughs> like what a cult we're part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, if you can't interpret my actions or theory as anything other than cult like, then maybe you are actually a member of a group with a fixed worldview. Mm. And I was like, yes, girl.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is, so- those are amazing quotes. And yeah, I'm just, loving everything that you're saying right now Um, because yeah when you're talking about like the uh, the Argentinian movement and and all of these things like all of these resistant movements like they all look so different from one another but the point is that people had to get together and think about okay Mm -hmm. what do we want What do we need? How do we come together and make it happen right now? How do we respond to the needs of the community? What does the community want? How do we, you know, collectively come to decisions that are going to be good for everyone? Like these are all experiments. And so people who sit back and think like, well, tell me how to do it. And it's like, no, you need to be the one critically thinking about how to do it. You need to be the one thinking, how can we do this? Let me talk with other people about how we can do this. It can't just be like, here it is, follow it. A like, laminated blueprint. Here it is, a laminated blueprint, right? It's just like, well, why don't you tell me what you think would be good? to do you know what i mean like why don't you help contribute to this like we all have to be doing this we all have to be the inventors here and we all have to have the courage to actually experiment and maybe maybe something we try at first will fail but then we have to think okay that didn't work now how can we improve on that how can we learn from that and go forward otherwise nothing is ever going to change
1: And it's not like everyone needs to be a genius and pull this stuff out completely out of nowhere. There are so many initiatives going on. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, as you said, like, I mean, if you're a a privileged person, then, like, support indigenous movements. Support, Mm -hmm. like, all these movements run by, like, people of color, other oppressed people that are are doing this work already, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, it, it really frustrates me because... Not only are people who criticize capitalism like often infantilized and seen as unrealistic, but it's also like we're, we're not just saying like in a vacuum, hey, guys, you should care about like anti-capitalism. It's bad. It's like there's so many movements of resistance going on all around us that mm-hmm. you could support, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: no, 100%.
1: And even though sometimes I'm like negative or sometimes frustrated, I really do I really do believe in what I mentioned earlier in the podcast that like capitalism's dictatorship over our imagination is faltering by the day. Mm -hmm, Like,
0: mm -hmm.
1: yeah, maybe this is just like, because I'm in leftist circles and uh, whatever, but I feel like people are, we're we're just reaching such absurd levels of inequality. And also just, Mm -hmm. I don't think that many people actually, yeah. Okay. So some people are frustrated that we criticize capitalism, and we still get some pushback from that. But I don't, I don't know how many people are actually thinking, this is the system that we need. And that's going to make the world great. Mm -hmm, That's true. And I feel like the younger generation is, they were even, they were brought up with this idea even less than we were you know, that like capitalism is great.
0: Yeah. I mean, and like, plus they're like living the fact that it's not great. Like they're living the fact that like, I'm not going to live the life that my parents had. I'm not going to buy a house. I'm not, I'm going to be like struggling um, to get by and it's scary. Like it's very scary. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just wanted to say like going back to when you're like, oh, you know, like you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be like absolutely brilliant to come up with these things. Um, I was listening to a podcast, uh, Rev left radio and, uh, they were talking to, um, I guess some scholars of the black Panthers, um, just basically talking about like the black Panthers and like their, um, their movement and what they did. And, um, um, like a lot like the leaders of that movement were like in their late teens early 20s and what what they accomplished was incredible because they actually listened to the community like the Black Panthers were of the community and they set it up so like community members would come to them and say things like you know I can't afford this medication can you get this for me or like you know white gangs are harassing my, my parents are, they're harassing us and we need protection. Can you provide security? Mm. And so they would organize based on the community's needs. So yeah, you don't have to be a genius. You just have to like talk to people listen. and mm-hmm. listen and think about like, okay, well, this is not working. This, these are the people's needs. So let's organize this. Right. I mean, you don't have to be a genius, but you have mm. to understand that what we're doing now doesn't work and you have to be open to embracing uncertainty and open to trying something different. If you're not open to trying, but I feel like this is all the like quote unquote white moderates who are just like, well, you know, I don't really have to try. Like I could just keep going the way that we're going and things won't be that bad for me, so why would I embrace uncertainty?
1: <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I
0: mean? And yeah, I think that's the kind of like it's hard to get people to care about things if they're not experiencing them, but I think the like I think more and more, especially as like automation takes over all of our jobs, and like it becomes the world becomes even more unequal. Fewer and fewer people are going to be in that position to say, "Well, I don't really have to care about it." Like, mm-hmm. there's going to be more and more people being like, "All right, fine, fuck." Like, let's organize this now. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. And understand that these these inequalities that are going on like across the world aren't just happening because of scarcity or because of some inevitable, like law that we need to compete and be the best, but that things are this way by design, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like the design and the rules of the game that need to be altered and need to be like critically engaged with. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like one of the most successful wars that capitalism has waged is the war against our imagination. Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's so many days where I feel like yeah, and I truly can't imagine the end of the world before I imagine the end of communism, uh, the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I forget like who exactly said that, but it's it's really, really easy and becoming easier by the day to conceive to imagine how capitalism is gonna like blow us up. I mean, it's as mm-hmm. easy as like imagining a nuclear confrontation right now between Mm -hmm. North Korea and between the United States or, um, you know, all the wars that are going to, all like the water and food shortages that we're going to be experiencing. And I mean, yeah, I can really fucking easily see how capitalism is going to blow us up. But it is trickier to understand and really like, conceive of how the world isn't going to end before capitalism does and Mm -hmm. how we're going to reorganize ourselves differently.
0: I mean, we're almost kind of taught to think that way. Like we're almost kind of taught to be like completely cynical and like perversely obsessed with our own demise like think about how many blockbuster films are out there about like Mm -hmm. catastrophe and the end of the world and like 2012 and everything is you know the day after tomorrow like oh my god the world strikes back and we die right like we're we're almost like taught to just like cynically be like yep that's the way the world's going we are taught to be like that so that we don't do anything to fix it before it's too late and it's like that's really fucked up
1: like yeah it's true this self-destructive like way of thinking is all around us and it very much like structures the way we think about the world i feel like young people and and perhaps older older people too i should stop referring to myself as just a young person because i'm <laughs> not that young anymore yeah. but um We're taught to think of ourselves and how much we're overworked and how much we have to be productive when we don't sleep and blah, blah, blah. There's almost like there's this aesthetic to being super self destructive Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. just working ourselves to the bone. And if you're not miserable or overstressed or having to drink 10 cups of coffee and barely sleeping and being as productive as possible, like there's something, (laughs) like you're lazy or there's something wrong with you. And I swear to God, resisting that, that is like my number one 2018 resolution is to do things that aren't aimed towards making me more productive mm-hmm. like my resolutions are literally like okay I'm starting to learn the guitar I want to read more fiction because mm-hmm. I feel like all I read is non-fiction and stuff that like <laughs> I'm genuinely interested in for sure but that have this almost like this this yields later on to make me have like better arguments or yeah. to make me understand the world better like it's not just enjoying the moment like I would if I was reading fiction and I was like, well I just want to spend time with these characters or have this experience by myself. It's like, well yeah, I want to learn about this, but also, I don't know, I feel like it's going to be I feel like it's this exercise in resisting capitalism for me to read fiction like 30 minutes a day, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I want to sleep more. I want to take an like an intro to to acting class. Like I want to challenge myself to do these things because otherwise this ideology of compulsive productivity really does take over take over your life if you're not
0: careful yeah absolutely like i have not read a fiction book in like 10 years like oh, i've read like one yeah. fiction book like right and i read a lot like i have all these books here i have like i have a stack you of do. books that i haven't even read yet that i've already ordered that i'm like oh these are must reads and mm-hmm. they're all like academic non-fiction
1: <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm reading this book right now by (laughs) Alice Munro that one of my best friends recommended to me. I mean, it's just like a collection of short stories and it's amazing, but Mm -hmm. I have to challenge myself literally at night Mm -hmm. to not, sometimes I'm like, oh, I kind of just want to put this down and like start this other book that I have right now called Seven Cheap Things of Capitalism or I forget what, it looks amazing, but I'm Mm -hmm. like, it, Marie! no, it is 1230, like you're relaxing in bed, you are allowed to read this short story and, and I'm – my attention span is not like trained to focus on just like pure enjoyment that doesn't have like a productive (laughs) yield.
0: Yeah, I know. It's so fucked. Uh, But you're so right. Like how many conversations do you have where it's just like, oh, how are you? And you're like, oh, I'm just – I'm exhausted. Like I'm just like, oh, I'm like spread too thin right now. Oh my God. I I can't (laughs) wait. I always say this. I'm like, I can't wait for the end of this month where like I'll finally have some time. And then the end of the month comes, I'm like, well, okay. I can't wait for like – Like, just a few weeks from now, I'll have some time. I'll have some time. I'm just, like, you know, like, I feel like I'm, like, running on the treadmill and just, like, I imagine myself just, like, tripping and just falling face down and, like, having the treadmill (laughs) just, like, suck me and, like, fly me off the back of it. Like, (laughs) that's, like, me constantly. Yeah. Um, And so many
1: people have to, again, like, I'm thinking, wow, I this conversation is also symptomatic of our privilege that we can just imagine. Not of our privilege in that I think that everyone wants to have more downtime, but that I can take on these things that Mm -hmm. hopefully – you know, I'm not working three different jobs. I'm not, like, Mm -hmm. under threat of getting evicted. I'm not having to, like, feed a family of five, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. I'm not saying that every single person can take these resolutions. Mm -hmm, Yeah.
0: Well, under capitalism, they can't, which is why we need an alternative.
1: Right. Yeah, but I think just the pressure of even being like, oh, it doesn't mean that I'm, like, super lazy and have no aspirations if I actually want to, like, sleep Mm -hmm. eight hours a night and perhaps read a
0: short story before I go to sleep. Mm -hmm, Exactly, or do, like, anything else that's not related to work or to… I don't know. But I guess right. like we're also activists. So, like, when we do have spare time off work, a lot of it is like, okay, well, we want to be good in our activism, which it's is like hard. We're going to brainstorm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is hard. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking
1: of which, I need to go to work in five minutes. Oh, really? i do yeah 420 (laughs)
0: um so yeah i guess i just kind of wanted to give just a final thought that like yeah we need to be the authors of our own future we need to be doing the critical thinking we need to be doing the experimentation and that i think it has to kind of be like we have to attack the structures that be and like like you said think about structural changes that we can do right now across the world that would help to democratize things and would help poor people um but mm-hmm. we also have to build from the bottom up and so i feel like i feel like there are ways to productively combine different anarchist ideas different communist mm-hmm. ideas different socialist ideas i don't think it has to look any one way and i think that yeah i think that we need to start f- work from the bottom up and the top down i guess so there's your blueprint totally. everybody
1: there's your <laughs> blueprint our blueprint message is pick her out to your own blueprint yeah there you go. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's true i think that like having one label like being a certain type of anarchist or being a certain type i mean because i think that you get this question too but i always get asked like what my Mm -hmm. particular ideology is um Mm -hmm. as like an activist or an anti-capitalist advocate but i think that labels fundamentally like restrict our ability to imagine imagine something and also like then we become more committed to the label itself and to that ideology mm-hmm. then like we're just adhering to another social construct instead of focusing on like the actual material shit that needs to be organized Mm
0: -hmm, in mm -hmm. our life
1: yeah society
0: yeah david harvey said something about like understanding these different ideas understanding these uh the different proposals made by like different ideologies is important but dogma is not like dogma doesn't serve us Mm -hmm. and i I just feel like yeah absolutely like i just i really don't care about what label i really just care about like let's be imaginative and let's work on this together so i don't know Mm -hmm. whatever well said Yeah. We also wanted to say that we actually do have a bunch of reviews on iTunes. (gasps) So thank you so much. We just, I, I didn't see them because iTunes is, does this really ridiculous thing where it only shows you reviews from people from your own country. So I have my country set to Canada and we have no Canadian reviews, but when I changed it to American, we have like a, bunch of reviews we have like 21 ratings and a bunch of reviews and then we also have some from That's like amazing. the uk and in europe and things like that so thank you everyone we're sorry that we kept saying that we had no yeah. reviews and like we although
1: act- it was getting kind of fun <laughs>
0: week after week
1: <laughs> you yeah. just being like do we have one yet and
0: you're just being like no <laughs> yeah no uh we have a lot so thank you so much That's so wonderful and we also had some very generous pledges this past few weeks. Um, so on Patreon, as one of our monthly donors, Helena or Helena, sorry, again, I'm not sure how they pronounce their name, um, but they increased their pledge very generously. So thank you so much. And we also had a very generous one-time donation from Joseph Gardner. So thank you so much, Joseph. We really appreciate that. Um, we're trying to save up for some new equipment and perhaps to put the show out at a greater frequency, like one once per week instead of once every couple of weeks. So all of your donations and pledges um, really, really matter. So we very much appreciate them. If you'd like to support the show, you can support us on Patreon, becoming a monthly donor, uh, or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, which is veganvanguardpodcast.com. Thanks, everyone. Okay, so thank you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.